right, and we are rolling once again, Brother Kevin. It is good to talk to you and be on Brother with you Lee. once more. Brother yeah. Dr. Lee. I always call you Dr. Lee, man. That makes that makes everyone think you're smart. <laughs> well, that and if you have a if you have a bunch of pieces of paper that say you know things, people are like, oh, well, they must be smart. The problem is, is I've met people that have pieces of paper that say they know things that weren't that bright. There was a dude, a brilliant chemist who taught in an institution that, that I was a part of at one point. And the dude had a habit of locking his keys in his car while it was running, like at school. He just, he was a really interesting guy, a really interesting dude, but brilliant chemist, but yeah, you know, not, not really, you know, not in the ways, the other ways of the world is as it were. But even so, I appreciate it. I do. I appreciate it. It's it's nice to get some recognition from people other than my students who are the only people that I forced to call me Dr. Well, Grant or Dr. Lee or whatever. By association, it it really kind of makes me look smart. <laughs> well, you know, like I know I need all the help I can get. And I guess <laughs> if you're running with me, you need all the help you can get too, brother. I I've, mean, got a, just- I've got a I've got a PhD in wasting time, that's for sure. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Oh, brother. Well, I know you haven't been wasting time lately. I know you guys had, and we had talked about this a couple of weeks ago, you guys had closed on a house and you guys got moved in this last weekend. And I was a slacker and didn't make the trip up to help y'all because we had some other irons in the fire and other things going on. Did your move go well? It went awesome, man. I, I've got the best of friends, even including you, even though you couldn't <gasps> come down and That's help. So sweet. Uh, yeah, so sweet. but I had seven guys that helped. So we were able to knock this thing out in no time. Didn't take awesome. any time. I just kind of watched and cheered them on. I'm a great cheerleader. I'm really good You're at that. You're really good like at that. when you were moving or you were helping your friend move. And I'm like, man, you guys are doing great. You're about to hit that <laughs> corner. Turn right. Good job, guys. <laughs> nah, man, I was, I was really kind of disappointed we couldn't make it up there. And over the last couple of weeks, you and I haven't talked outside of this podcast as much as we had before because I knew you guys were busy getting ready for the move and I didn't want to aggravate you or bother you or anything. So now that you guys are getting moved in, I'll give you about another week to get unpacked and then I'll start blowing you up again so that we can visit and rap about other things, including the new book you're writing, which we won't get into now. But I'm looking forward to that and just looking forward to seeing you and Bethany again, just getting to hang out. I have to have you all out for a good dinner. Man, I am down. Pay you back. Hey, that works. And then we can have you guys down. We'll just ping pong back and forth. One of the things I'm wanting to do though, is, is I want to get a, I was telling Kim, I want to buy a griddle, like a big propane powered griddle. And I'm going to sell my propane grill. So any of you listening, if you, if you would like to buy my propane grill, give me, you know, reach out to me, let me know. You can email us. We have an email link down there. If you want to buy my grill and uh, we'll make sure you get it. So I can buy that propane griddle. You can cook so much bacon on that. It'd be amazing. But if we keep talking about food, I'm going to get hungry. That's what In any case, cast is now. All right, what else we got for sale? Uh, well, let's see. Next thing really? up is a gently used pair of children's <laughs> shoes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're not deviating from our purpose at all. Now we have been discussing marriage, divorce, and remarriage for some weeks now, and we're drawing near to the end of this series. And we've got some cool stuff on the horizon for what we're going to move forward into and some other topics we want to discuss. And those of you listening, we really would like to hear from you and what topics you feel would be beneficial. What would you like to hear us study? What would you like to hear us discuss? We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line and let us know. We know what we're going to be covering at least for the next couple of months. 
Um, but beyond that, we'd like to hear what y'all are interested in, what you want to hear about. I mean, we realize that you guys are probably starting to get a little weary with listening to marriage, divorce, and remarriage, which is why you're in luck because this is our penultimate episode on the subject. Is it not? We got one more after this. Yeah. Yeah. This is our penultimate episode. We got one more. I don't know. I think we this one's going to be the, the de facto episode, I think. Well, yeah. So, yeah. The next one's going to be skip this one is what we're saying. There's no need to listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, you want to listen to all of them. That's for sure. Because there's so much context in all of them. And in our next episode, we're going to be going into some, uh, we're going to be answering your questions. We've got a few really good questions and we're going to be talking about practical application for these studies and what they mean in a 21st century context. That's where we're going next week. But for this week, we're going to, we're going to continue studying the new Testament concept and context of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We talked about Jesus and we talked about contextualizing Jesus a couple episodes back. Then we talked about Jesus's teachings on the guilty party. And then we talked about Jesus's teachings about the innocent party and the exception clause. And that episode about the exception clause is dynamite. It is just pure dynamite. It is fantastic. It's also our longest episode to date, but it did not feel as long as what it was whenever we sat down and discussed it. It was amazing. It was, it was great. So if you haven't listened to it yet, please go back and listen to it. It's not super critical that you listen to that episode before this one, but it still sets the stage and we strongly encourage you to do so. Tonight, we're going to continue the discussion though, by looking at what Paul taught, because you have the teachings of Jesus in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have the teachings of Paul in Romans to a lesser extent, he's really not making a point about marriage and divorce and Romans, but we'll, we'll get to that in, as we go through this podcast. But the biggest portion of Paul's teaching on marriage is found in the book of first Corinthians. It's found in first Corinthians chapter seven, and he kind of phases in and out of different things, specifically first Corinthians seven and one, um, on through verse 33, a little bit beyond that. But in, in any case, that's where we're going to find the teachings of Paul. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. Yeah, really the whole chapter. I mean, he, he deals a lot with marriage, divorce, and remarriage to spend a whole chapter yeah. on this particular topic. And, and what he's doing here, when you look at the context, and this is what I try to remind myself when I'm studying the Bible but also when I'm just teaching it to let people know we have to look at the context. And I know we've talked about that over and over and over and over and over. But similar to Jesus, when Paul speaks about marriage and divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, he's not giving a treatise on the topic. He's he's answering specific questions they've asked him related to marriage. And not just related to marriage, but related to marriage in view of the present day distress. Now, we don't really know what that present day distress is. There has been different reasons to believe it may have been a famine or persecution. Different people believe different things, but Paul just talks about a present-day distress. And so he is writing in view with the backdrop of answering these questions, not just universally, but contextually within the present-day distress. So when we read Paul's answers, you can almost add at the end, in the present-day distress, because that's specifically what he's addressing. Yeah, that's exactly what he's addressing. And just like we contextualize Jesus, if we go back and we just very briefly touch on that again, Jesus, as we remember, because we know all of our listeners are great listeners that listen to every episode that we release, and you guys have listened to those episodes, we remember that Jesus was answering specific questions that were being asked about a specific context of marriage, specifically the any cause divorce in the school of Hillel. 
we know that the Apostle Paul is answering specific questions. And even though, you know, an entire chapter, though there weren't chapters in the original letters, even though there's what we perceive as an entire chapter devoted to this topic, Paul still isn't speaking in a universal sense. Just like you said, Kevin, he's speaking to a very specific context. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, concerning the things of which you wrote to me. In other words, all right, so y'all sent me a letter and y'all asked me some questions. Let's answer those questions now. So in the context of Paul in marriage, divorce, and remarriage, Paul isn't speaking in a universal sense. He's speaking to address specific issues that the church in Corinth had brought to his attention. And the problem with that is, is uh, or the problem with this idea is a lot of people ignore that idea. A lot of people go to Jesus or they go to Paul and they read into the text their exact scenario and they forget that Jesus only dealt with specific questions and situations and that Paul does the same thing. He only deals with specific questions and specific situations. And then you have people, because of that, they try to force meaning into the text that isn't there because they're trying to answer every conceivable question. But, you know, the Bible doesn't answer every conceivable question in in its vacuum. It doesn't answer every conceivable question that we could possibly come up with. There's certainly enough there in principle to help us reach sound scriptural, biblical, moral conclusions. But the Bible isn't necessarily an answer book to every single question that we'll have. It does answer some questions in a very specific way, but there's also a lot of gray area there, and that's scary for a lot of people, especially people that are entrenched within legalism as you were and as I was, because we're more comfortable in those black and white scenarios. And you start introducing shades of gray, brother, it gets scary in a hurry for someone who's legalistically entrenched. Well, especially Fifty Shades of Gray. Uh, once you start introducing that, Whoa. it gets really scary. Yeah, but whoa, whoa. You... <laughs> Just making sure people are listening out there. So when you look at the idea of the context of these are specific questions that have been asked to him that he's he's answering, we see in verse 26 and 29 through 33, he reiterates that he's answering these questions with the lens of the present day distress, that I'm answering this with the backdrop of the present day distress. And so when we, when we look at this, we have to realize that whatever Paul is saying here, there is application for us, there's no doubt about it, but we have to be careful that we're understanding it through the present-day distress that Paul is actually specifically discussing. So Paul begins, and, and I would say if you look at the whole chapter, his chapter can be summed up as this. Whatever state you're currently in, remain in it. That That's really yeah. what you can summarize this whole chapter. But when it comes to being single and unmarried, Paul emphasizes over and over and over and over again that because of the present day distress, it's better to remain as you are. It's better right now not to be married. It's better to be unmarried. And he says that because of the present day distress. And so that's really... You could say his the overview of, of the whole chapter is because of the present day distress, whatever situation you're in, remain in that situation. But if you're not married, don't get married, and you're more you're better off by not being married right now because of the present day distress. Yeah, and and the big perspective that exists in the minds of most people, the big two things that people believe that is, as you mentioned before, was a famine because we have historical evidence that a famine was taking place in that region at that time. 
And if you're, you know, married or you take a wife, well, now all of a sudden you're not just responsible for meeting your needs and feeding your own belly. You're responsible for feeding her and any other children that you may have. Um, some people say that it was persecution that if, you know, you take a spouse, you know, maybe under threat of torture or dismemberment or imprisonment to yourself, you could withstand that. But the minute they start coming after your spouse, well, then you might give up your brethren or you might denounce Christ or whatever reason, whatever the case is, whatever that distress was, we don't know what exactly it was, but we have some really good, compelling ideas. It was either a famine or evidence rather that it was a famine or it was extreme persecution in that region. In either case, what you said is exactly right. The Apostle Paul saying, if you're married, stay married. If you're unmarried, stay unmarried. But the Corinthians had some very specific questions that they were wanting to ask Paul. They asked him those questions, and then Paul answers those questions in this chapter. Well, in Paul's teachings here, especially about remaining unmarried and how he talks about how it's better to to be unmarried. It's better to remain unmarried in that he wished that everyone was was like him, which was unmarried at that time. And Paul's teachings because of that led some to believe in the early church that it was better at all times to remain unmarried, not just during this specific present day distress scenario, but at all times, it's better to not get married. So this idea of it being better to remain unmarried during the present day distress ended up getting distorted with this message that it was always better to remain unmarried. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the early church and the context of the early church fathers, because we were going to do a whole episode on this, but I was talking to Lee, and I told him that I think that this would probably bore the snot out of people, because number one, (laughs) most people aren't even going to know who, who we're talking about, these early church fathers, but number two... If you are interested in that, because it's not authoritative, all right? It's not, we don't go to that to prove that, you know, something is right or something is wrong, but we do go just to help us with with evidence to better understand context and things of that nature. So if you're interested in that, I've got that on my blog, kevinpendergrass.org. If you just type in early church fathers or marriage, it's going to come up. And then if you can't find it, just email us and we'll make sure to send that to you. But here's how we know how impactful Paul's teaching actually was, or should I say the misunderstanding of Paul's teaching, because this continued to to lay forth this idea that it's better not to marry, that if you marry, you're weak. If you marry, you're not going to be as, as, a, as, as much of a faithful Christian as you could have been had you not been, uh, or had you never gotten married, and so, or had you remained single. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. So, there you go. So, you got this it. understanding of Paul's teaching would end up being very influential, very influential among many in the early church. And the early church actually held to very strong views of what's called asceticism, which is the idea that the flesh was evil. And there were all sorts of different beliefs and variances as to how far people took this. Some people believe that any form of pleasure was wrong, that if you had any kind of pleasure if within your flesh that it was sinful and not just sexual pleasure. I'm talking about if you uh, eat foods that taste good and it's too pleasurable, then you need to abstain from that because you shouldn't be indulging in that sinfulness of your flesh because you should never appease your flesh. And so there are a lot of different views of, of asceticism during that time. And much of it has been said to be traced back to Judaism, such as the uh, Essenes or Essenes, 
not to traditions within Greek asceticism. But no scholar denies that certainly there were a lot of ascetic faults in Christianity that have roots in Greek moral fault. And many in the early church wrongfully actually pulled from Paul's own writings to justify forms of asceticism, even though Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 and Colossians 2, 18 through 23 taught against such. Now, this all led to some viewing marriage as weak and others actually outright condemned marriage. The institution itself, they condemned it. Uh, For example, one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, he described the situation during this time and he lived in the, the second century. And he talked about the diversity of the different views, which what he called heresy, both inside and outside the church that was influencing Christianity. And these are just a couple of his quotes here. He said, quote, They declare also that marriage and generation or genealogy are from Satan. Many offshoots of numerous heresies have, have already been formed from those heretics we have described. To give an example, springing, springing up from Marcion, those who are called and I'm, I'm going to hopefully pronounce this right. I was even looking this up, and there's different ways to pronounce it, but I think it's incratites, all right, or incratites is, right. is how most, most right. people pronounce that. I, I tried to, uh, different scholars pronounce it differently, and some of the people I listen to, they have British accents, uh, so that doesn't help very much. But anyway. Oh, dude, we had an instructor when <laughs> I was in school who was from London originally who had moved to Texas. And she is the only person I've ever heard. She had the most fascinating accent ever. She had a British accent with a Texas drawl. And that was, it was just, it was just so interesting. I could sit and listen to her talk for hours. We'd call them the incratites. But she, but let me tell you something. This woman, she ruined me on capillaries. I mean, for two years, I said capillaries, which are little blood vessels as capillaries because that's how she said it. So yeah, I get it. Pronunciation, tomato, tomato. Anyway, sorry, sorry. That's a bunny trail. Continue, please. Incrotites. So these incrotites. Oh, okay. So they, so they preached against marriage and uh, this is, this is once again, I'm quoting Irenaeus. He says, thus setting aside the original creation of God and indirectly blaming him who made the male and female for the propagation of the human race. A certain man named Tatian first introduced this blasphemy He was a hearer of Justin's, and as long as he continued with him, he expressed no such views. But after his martyrdom, he separated from the church and excited and puffed up by the thought of being a teacher, as if he were superior to others, he composed his own peculiar type of doctrine. He invented a system of certain invisible eons like the followers of Valentinius, while like Marcion and others, he declared that marriage was nothing else than corruption and fornication. And so... The idea here is that very early on, there were a lot of influences about marriage being bad, that you shouldn't marry at all. And obviously, Irenaeus is is condemning this, but these were views in the church. And so some Christians, as we see, also condemned all remarriage, even that of a widow woman. And uh, and once again, if you want all of this documentation, if you want all this information, I'd be glad to to send it to you if you're listening, so that you can have all these actual quotations because it's a very in depth, long study that I spent about three to four years to put together. But uh, we see that there were those who did condemn even remarriage of a widow woman and a, a, a thin. Um, let's see, remaining celibate. I'm trying to get to all this information here. Remaining celibate was also viewed at times by not just some, but many as being more superior, such as Tertullian. And some even opposed marriage altogether. And, uh, of course, we already talked about the Incronites. Uh, they, they were a ascetic 2nd century sect of Christians. 
And then we see also that a group in the church developed in the third century known as the Desert Fathers, who would later add what is called the Desert Mothers. So it's very interesting when you think about just the history here, because all of this was very early on. We, we see the influence of asceticism. It wasn't biblical, but we can see how people took things and they twisted it and ended up teaching a message that simply wasn't true at all. And uh, Anthony the Great, he actually has been attributed to starting this movement, Lee. And I, I don't know how much study you've done, but it's very interesting because he heard a uh, sermon one Sunday. And it was on Matthew 19, 21 and Mark chapter 10. The man, the rich young ruler in Jesus, who came, the man who came to Jesus and asked him what all he had to do. And Jesus said, we well, have to sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then you can follow me and go to heaven. Well, he heard that sermon and he was so pricked in the heart that he did exactly what Matthew 19, 21 said. He ended up selling and giving all the proceeds to the poor and so he could follow Christ. And he not only followed this advice, but he made a further step of moving into the desert so that he could have complete solitude. And, and this was known, they were really kind of this hermit group known as the early church fathers. And uh, I'm sorry, not the early church fathers, within the early church fathers known as the desert fathers. And yeah, they were a subset. They were a yeah, subset. And they lived... They live well. They live these celibate lives, vowing different forms of chastity and asceticism. And just a little history lesson here: this is when we begin to see the concept of uh, of the idea of um, of Monastery. monks. Yeah, yeah. monasticism. Yeah. Now, monasticism really wasn't, I guess you could say, systemized until until a little bit later. But we begin to see the beginnings of this taking place very early on, and. We actually see it's 516 with the rule of St. Benedict is when you could say it became truly systemized at that point, but it was hundreds of years before where the ideology of what would be what we know as kind of monks and nuns within Christianity really started and began. And so it was with these early desert fathers in the second century here where these Christian hermits, by the way, who had a major influence on the development of Christianity. So all of this is just extremely interesting. I know that for some this may be a little bit boring, but it just shows and gives us a good historical. Hey, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, you cut out just for a minute. I'm not sure if our uh, recording capture is going to get that. So go ahead and go ahead and repeat that. So okay. sorry, sorry about that. Buddy. All right, what part do you want me to repeat? <laughs> uh, well. So, well, this idea about the Desert Fathers and the idea that this led to, you know, the concept of monks and nuns and that they had a major influence on the development of Christianity over the years and over the centuries to come. Um, the thought that you were beginning to develop after that, where were you going with that? Yeah, so basically just the idea that it would be several hundred years later until it was really systemized, the idea of, of monks and nuns, but it started at this point. And so... To some people, that may be boring. To some people, they may say, well, you know, why go into detail about all that? Well, the reason is because this is how the early church really viewed marriage. People took Paul's writings and oftentimes alluded back to them and still do today to try to teach a certain aspect about marriage that just isn't true because they're not reading it within context. And so it led people not only to not marry during that time, it led people to not marry for years after and to the point of even condemning marriage, many people would utilize Paul to say, hey, you shouldn't be marrying because it's better to remain as you are to not get married. And so what they did is they are taking these statements out of context 
because they forget Paul was writing and they may not forget or they may have not forgotten, but they didn't properly apply it, that Paul was writing within this context of the present day distress. Paul was not actually saying it's better to never get married at all, because if that's the case, why did God create woman for man in Genesis? Yeah. Why did God create marriage when there really was no culture at all other than just the garden culture? So we know that it's good for man to have a, a, a wife and a wife to have a man. We know that it's not good for man to be alone. And so when Paul says it's better to remain single, he's speaking with the present day distress in view. Well, and what's so interesting though, is that this idea of celibacy that these desert fathers promulgated, this idea that led to the evolution of, you know, what we might say the celibate priesthood in the Roman Catholic church. What's interesting is, is that even in Protestantism and not too long ago in Protestantism with the Puritans and the Quakers, you know, the Quakers would forbid their members from marrying as well. And the Quakers would say that, you know, in the kingdom, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, quoting Jesus from that passage back yonder, not thinking about the kingdom to come, you know, the heavenly kingdom that, you know, exists as our afterlife. But they viewed that as what Jesus was talking about with the church, that, well, now that the church has come and the kingdom is here, we don't need to marry anymore. And then they would also use what the Apostle Paul taught to further back up that claim. So they would they would take these ideas and misunderstand it and misuse it. And, and that's to say, you know, who hasn't done that? I mean, you and I did that for how long? We came to these passages of Paul. We came to the teachings of Jesus. And our goal was to demonstrate a perspective or a viewpoint that if you marry and you divorce for any reason other than adultery, well, then you do not have the right to get remarried at all. We did the same thing the church fathers did. We did the same thing that the Quakers and the Puritans did, but we just took a little bit of a different angle on it because we had an inherited preconception that we pursued as truth. So, I mean, I, I guess you could say it's this is a position that that's fraught with that really throughout its entire history. Well, and this helps people to understand why the early church and as it continued, not just in the second and third century with the early church fathers, but as as the church continued, I mean, after, year after year, decade after decade, we see that this view of marriage really took on a life of its own, and people still point to the teachings of Paul and say, well, look, even Paul said it's better to never get married, and we forget, wait a minute, Paul is saying in the present day distress. That's what I said at the beginning. If you are reading these words of Paul when he's giving his advice, you can always end it with in the present day distress, because that's what he already said he is writing within the backdrop of is not just generally speaking, if it was better to never get married at all, then why even create marriage? Why say that yeah. it's not good for man to be alone, but it's better? So we're going to say it's not good for man to be alone, but it's better for man to be alone? Well, how can something be better if it's not good? So yeah universally that doesn't make sense. Universally, it's not good for man to be alone. Marriage is a wonderful thing. God realized that the majority of people are going to need it. Contextually, during present-day distress, it's better not to because it's going to be a lot easier as an unmarried person to live during that time period, whether it was famine, whether it was persecution, perhaps even a combination of both, than if you were married. So Paul just goes through the list here. He, he, he talks about how it's better for the unmarried and the widows to remain unmarried. 
And some people think here, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 and verse 7. Some people think the unmarried here may be a reference to widowers because Paul, many people think Paul was probably a widower. Some believe that Paul may have even been divorced. Some even believe Paul was never married, but not very many people take that position because as most scholars point out, he was a member of the Sanhedrin more than likely earlier in his life. And so in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So most people think that Paul was at one point in time married, whether his spouse died, whether he was divorced, we really don't know. I mean, we can guess and we can talk, we can have our own musings, but there's really just not enough information at all. Everything would just be a shot in the dark. What we do know is that at the time Paul was writing this, whether he was divorced whether he was a widower or whether he had never been married, he was unmarried. In fact, all of those classifications fall under the word unmarried. So no matter which way you want to go with it, we can conclude Paul was unmarried at this time. And so he tells the the widows and he tells those who are unmarried, it's better not to get married. Remain as you are. And then he tells the divorced in 1 Corinthians 7.10, to remain unmarried. And then we see the betrothed or the virgin, those who had never been married in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26, 34, and 38, to not get married. So Paul covers all classifications of the unmarried and says that it is better due to the present day distress to not marry if you are married. But with all of that being said, Paul makes it clear he is not forbidding marriage, nor is he teaching for celibacy. And how do we know that, Lee? How do we know that his imperatives to not marry are not restrictive imperatives? Well, we know that they're not restrictive imperatives because the Apostle Paul gives a a clause or an out that further denotes what he says. Like if, like he says in verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 7, but to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but, verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So in this sense, in, in verses uh, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, and, and even in verse 2, whenever he re- references sexual immorality, it's because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. In this, he's saying, it's better if you remain unmarried because of this present day distress, but this isn't a clause that eliminates all other possibilities because of sexual immorality, because of the temptation of fornication, because of that drive that God put within us that motivates us to be fruitful and multiply people can and should get married. If they're facing that temptation, if a person cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Paul says it is better to marry than to burn. Well, and you see this all throughout the chapter. You see 1 Corinthians 7, 2, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 7, 27 and 28, 1 Corinthians 7, 36, and 1 Corinthians 7, 39, where Paul gives permission for the unmarried to be able to marry. So he never restricts it and says you can't do it. He never says it's a sin to do it. In fact, he even says in 1 Corinthians 7, 27 and 28, that if you are loosed from a wife, do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And the reason why Paul was so explicit in saying you have not sinned is because there were those who were saying that it was wrong to marry. Remember, we already talked about that. There there was this idea that it was was sinful to marry even at all. And in fact, Paul calls this a doctrine 
of demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He teaches that if someone is forbidding marriage, they are not only teaching a false doctrine, but they are teaching a doctrine of demons. And so Paul is constantly saying, don't get married, but if it's if it's something that you struggle with, you need to get married, get married during this this time. But it's better during the present day of stress not to. But if if you really need to, if you can't exercise self-control during this present day of stress, it's yeah, better you're to marry in the present day of stress than it is to burn with passion in the present day of distress. So same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, 27, 28. Don't do it. Don't be seeking a wife during the present day of stress. Don't do it. But if you do it, you have not sinned. So to say that you have sinned would be would would be teaching a doctrine of demons. So we know Paul is not teaching false doctrine himself. He's not on one hand saying if you teach celibacy, you're teaching a forced celibacy, excuse me. You're teaching a doctrine of demons and then on the other hand going around teaching forced celibacy. That just does not make sense. And so we know that Paul is not saying that this is something that you you have to do He's simply saying, because of the present day of stress, this is the definitely the better route to go. And there were different forms, as we were already taught, of asceticism that taught you needed to deprive your body and not have any enjoyment. And that's why you did have some who were condemning marriage, and people were even using Paul's words, and Paul let them know, no, you're not in sin if you marry, you're not wrong if you remarry, uh, but it's just better right now if you don't. So Paul refuted this idea for celibacy. The bottom line is both Paul and Jesus taught that abstinence from marriage can be good and beneficial, especially in certain scenarios and situations. It could even be better, but neither one taught for celibacy at all. Yeah. And to me, that's that's the biggest takeaway at this point is the idea that in some situations, celibacy is a good thing. We remember what Jesus said after his disciples answered and said, well, if this is the way it is, you know, we talked about that in some episodes back. If this is the way it is, well, then it's better not to marry at all. And Jesus said, well, yeah, for some people, it is better for him to marry not at all. You know, some are, you know, born eunuchs from their mother's womb. Some are made eunuchs by men and some are make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. You know, some people can accept it. Some can't. You know, Jesus said not all can accept this in Matthew 19 and verses 10 and 11. And each has their own gift from God. You know, it said in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 7, you know, that Paul taught celibacy was for their benefit. It wasn't to lay a restraint upon them. It wasn't to hold them back. It wasn't to keep them from having fun or to pursue a worthwhile, happy life. It was to promote good order and to secure their undivided devotion to God. It, you know, it's it's one of those things where he mentions that, you know, some people or those who are married are concerned about the ways of the flesh, how they may please their spouse. But, you know, those who are unmarried can focus their entirety of their devotion to God and they can focus their attention to the Lord. And I'm paraphrasing that, of course. But Paul's desire was for all who were unmarried to remain that way. He wanted them to remain unmarried. But he's not stating a universal or moral truth. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given those qualifiers. Yeah, but because of sexual immorality, if you need to marry, go ahead and get married. It's better to marry than to burn. He didn't say, if you marry, you have not sinned for no reason. He's talking about that present-day distress, that context, and that's so important to remember. I mean, we remember it's it's a good thing to marry and have a spouse, as you just said a few moments ago, Kevin. I mean, it's, it's not good for man to be alone. And whenever you have male and female in the garden, God sees that. It's very good. It's a good thing. It's not good for man to be alone. 
Paul as a Jew recognized that. Paul understood that. But in this specific context, it was better to probably, you know, cool your jets a little bit if you can get by with it, if you can stand it because of the present distress, whether that was famine or persecution. But one of the things that's really important is this concept that nowhere does the Bible forbid marriage. And that idea of this being a doctrines of demons, you know, I never really thought about it in this way. Whenever we say, well, because you were married before and now you have divorced and adultery wasn't involved, like you and I used to teach, well, now you can't get married at all. We're forbidding to marry. We're teaching a doctrine of demons whenever we do that. Because the Bible doesn't forbid marriage, it forbids the practice of forbidding marriage. Yeah, and that's what is so so powerful when you look at the context, because it paints a completely different picture as if you were to just pick up your Bible and read it. And I think, I, I don't know if it was you, I was talking to someone about this, because I'm working on my book, and I'm going to be talking a lot about this in my book, where the whole book is going to be talking about how we read the Bible, but... One of the ways that a lot of people read the Bible today is they just go to it and they read a couple of Bible verses and then they it's it's kind of a reader response is what the technical term is. It's the idea of, well, I read and then what does it mean to me? What do I get out of it? Well, yeah. the Bible is not a book meant to be uh, read or applied that way. That's not how you go to the Bible. You don't say, well, I'm just going to pick up the Bible and read a verse and see how it applies to me. That's what people have done. I remember I was talking to a man about 1 Corinthians 7 and I was explaining to him my position on 1 Corinthians 7. And he said, well, when I read through it, I, I just I, I, that's just not what I get out of it. And so I started asking him some pointed questions about the context. And he said, well, he said, I, I've never thought of it that before, but that's just not what I've personally gotten out of it. And I said, well, it's not about what we have personally got out of. That has nothing to do with it. It's not about what I get out of it, what you get out of it. What did it mean to them, because we need to be figuring out what did they get out of it, not what we get out of it. Because before we start talking about how we can apply something and what we can get out of, we need to we need to make sure we understand what they got out of out of the the text. I mean that that's so important to first ask not what I get out of the Bible, but what did the original audience get out of it? What, how would they have understood it, and then apply it to me? As I said at the beginning. Paul is not writing a, a treatise on marriage, divorce, remarriage. He is addressing their specific, very specific questions during a time of present day distress. This is not Paul saying, well, now I'm going to tell you all about marriage. That's just not what we see here. Yeah, and, and and that's not what we see here at all. He's he's absolutely addressing the questions they have. But one of the charges that we get, though, and one of the issues that we see is a lot of people say that at this point, whenever you look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, and then if you take that and you put it all like maybe on, on a table or in a chart, and then you take what all of Jesus says in you know Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and everything about uh, marriage, divorce, remarriage, or, or whatever else, that Jesus and Paul are contradicting each other. That Paul is contradicting what Jesus taught because Jesus taught that, you know, unless, you know, if you divorce for any reason other than fornication, well, then you sin, you've committed adultery, even though we've just spent what, how many hours refuting that idea? That's what a lot of people take away from it. And people say, well, now Paul's saying this, Jesus is saying this, but they're contradicting each other. But if you notice in 1 Corinthians 7 and 10, you see Jesus and Paul saying the same thing. 
Paul says that his teaching is the same as Jesus's teaching about divorce. He says, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. So we see that Paul, he's talking about divorce in this context. He's not talking about legal separation in this context. And we're going to talk about the separation divorce under Roman law later. But he's not talking about just being separated as we might talk about in the common, in our modern parlance. A lot of times people say that in this sense, the Apostle Paul, well, what he's saying here is, is that you can separate yourself if you need to, but you can't divorce or you can't, you know, remarry afterwards. This is just talking about separation. That's all he's talking about here. He's talking about divorce. Legal separation didn't exist during the first century because separation was legal divorce under Roman law. That wasn't legal divorce under Jewish law, but it was divorce under Roman law. Under Greek law, under Roman law, if a person abandoned their spouse and just up and left the house, they were considered divorced. If a person, the person who owned the house, a woman could just leave the house and leave her husband, and that was considered a binding legal divorce under Greek and Roman law. If a man told his wife, hey, you need to leave, that was considered a divorce there as well. I was going to read this. Didn't oh, exist. Well, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was going to interject this real quick. Yeah, because I've got this quote I wanted to read. Um, I'd actually was reading this this week, just going back over my notes. And and this is pretty interesting. Instone and Brewer brings this up. This is uh, in his book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible, the Social and Literary Context. And he says, to enact this divorce by separation, the owner of a house could simply tell his or her partner to leave or the partner could move out and leave out of the house on their own. Neither needed to give the partner any warning and neither had the power to prevent the divorce. There was no need to name any grounds for this divorce, though in a few cases, the reasons have been documented. One person divorced a partner who became blind in one eye and another said that he, so I guess if you were a pirate, you may end up getting divorced. <laughs> oh, and, and another said that he was, <laughs> it's a good joke, wasn't it? And another said that he was divorcing his wife because she had grown old and was not pretty anymore. It's difficult to know how many marriages actually ended in divorce during this time, but evidence suggests that the majority of marriages ended before the death of a partner. Greco-Roman marriages certificates were worded as though they expected the marriage to end in divorce, not death. They contained far more details about what should happen in the event of divorce than about arrangements should one of the partners die. So what this proves is a couple of things or, or demonstrates is a, are a couple of things. Number one, a lot of people were divorcing and remarrying. Most, in fact, it was it was almost expected. Uh, and I believe was it twelve months? I would have to go back and read this. But during this time, this Greco-Roman culture, that if once you were divorced, like you had expected to get married within twelve months or something like that, I forgot yes. exactly. So it wasn't. Yeah, it was something yeah, it was, that you. Yeah, it was one year, according to what um, Instone Brewer said, and I think Professor Luck gets into it some in his book as well. But I haven't read his in a while. But the idea is, is that once you divorced in this way, if you were a Roman citizen, the population of actual Roman citizens was on the decline over time as Rome absorbed so many other nations. And the emperor was concerned that people would, you know, that Romans would be outnumbered by non-Romans. So there was an edict declared that if you were a Roman citizen, you were required to marry and bear children. And if you divorced, you had 12 months to remarry. And if you didn't, you could turn your neighbor in and get a reward for it. So if you divorce your spouse and you didn't remarry within a year, you could turn your neighbor in or someone could turn you in. And if they turned you in, then they would get rewarded. So there was a lot of pressure on people to remarry after the fact. 
Yeah, and a, and a lot of people, unfortunately, their ignorance can be seen in the way that they interpret 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, because they say, well, this is talking about separation. This isn't talking about divorce. Well, that is that was divorce. That is exactly what Paul's talking about. It was the same thing. The word translated as depart in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 is the same word used for divorce in Matthew 19, 6 that Jesus used. And so this was even used in the papyra when speaking of divorces. This was the technical term for it. So Paul is clearly talking talking about divorce. He's talking about he's, he's talking about those who are divorcing their spouses unlawfully. And I go ahead and I throw that phrase unlawfully in there because Paul already said he's going to be teaching the same thing that Jesus taught. So he's not contradicting Jesus. Well, if Jesus condemned only unlawful divorces, then guess what? That's exactly what Paul is teaching against. He's teaching against unlawful divorce because Paul said he's going to be teaching the same thing Jesus taught regarding divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And Lee, you brought up a point that I find interesting because last week we spent you know a couple hours explaining how Jesus was not just limiting the exception to adultery uh, universally. Rather, he was talking about how adultery is the only exception in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, but that Jesus also, there's no, there's no reason to believe Jesus did not recognize the universally held belief of Exodus 21, 7 through 11 that allowed for and even demanded if you weren't able to take care of your spouse for you to be able to divorce them so that they could be free to marry someone else. And so that's exactly what Jesus taught. And if you want to learn more about that, we spent a couple hours on our last podcast going into great detail with that. But my point is, is that we would expect Paul to also be talking about the, the very some of the very same things as, as Jesus did. So it's interesting because between Jesus and Paul, you don't get a contradictory picture. You get a full picture of really exactly what it looked like during that time and what they were specifically discussing. Some people want to try to pit both Jesus and Paul against each other. They're saying the same thing. They're speaking to different scenarios and different audiences, and they're answering different questions. And so, of course, they're going to be giving new or different information, but that information is not conflicting. So the divorce under consideration here is unlawful. Bottom line is, Paul is saying, if you're married, do not divorce unlawfully. And, and he bases that on what Jesus said. He goes, I'm saying the same thing Jesus said. Guys, do not divorce unlawfully. Now, an uh, interesting side point is that the one who did the divorcing is told to reconcile. Now, we're going to get into that here a little bit later, but right now, what I want to pull out of that point is that whenever the word reconciled is used, it's talking about the offending party, not the offended party. For example, God is not reconciled to us because he didn't do anything. We're reconciled to God because we are the ones who sinned. So Paul is speaking of someone who is actually initiating this unlawful divorce. That's who Paul is talking about. He's, he's saying, look, if you're married, do not initiate an unlawful divorce. Don't do it. Divorce without moral grounds is sin, just as Jesus taught. And so Paul was not retracting any of the exceptions for divorce. He explicitly said that he is teaching the same thing Jesus taught. What he's doing is he's emphasizing the importance of marriage and staying in that marriage and not initiating an unlawful divorce. And what's really interesting when you get into this is that Paul established the same principle from Exodus 21, 7 through 11 of freedom from the marriage if your spouse neglected you. And so, Lee, I'll kind of turn this over to you for a little bit to, to talk about this. 
Well, the idea that Exodus 21 and verses 7 through 11 enumerates the scriptural reasons other than adultery for which a divorce can be sought, that was, as we spent so much time delving into, that idea in and of itself was never disputed in, in those days. It didn't matter which school you belong to, everyone recognized that. And Paul, being a Jew, it's fair to assume, but we can even do better than assume, but it's fair to assume that the Apostle Paul would have felt and thought the same thing because he was a Jew. He lived in that time. He lived in that place. He lived in that culture. We examined and studied why Jesus would have stated the same thing and taught and believed the same thing and the evidence for that previously. In this specific context, in this idea, this Exodus 21 reason for divorce freed one from a marriage in which they were neglected. And whenever we see in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, whenever he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless, in verse 2, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and lead each, let each woman have her own husband. Now in verse 3, many scholars believe that this is a reference to Exodus 21 verses 7 through 11. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. This idea of rendering to the wife the affection due her, this is the things that are expected and required of a marriage. Those expectations and requirements that a concubine would be able to have or granted, it makes perfect sense that that would be granted to a wife as well. And then if we go on down to verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, that if the unbeliever departs, that is, if someone divorces you, if you get divorced on and you're the innocent party in this, you know, we talked about how Jesus really doesn't address the innocent party, but Paul does. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage. They are not bound to them anymore, just as a concubine wouldn't be bound to her master husband if he neglected her. So that's what we see here. Well, and William Heth, he is... Probably the, or at least at one point, the de facto, one of the de, de facto scholars on marriage, divorce, and remarriage on, against the, uh, the view that you could divorce for even fornication. He believed in no exception. He believed in no reason for divorce and remarriage. And yet he ended up, William Heth ended up changing his mind and he wrote about that. I think we talked about that a little bit last week. But if you Google search William Heth, H-E-T-H, why I changed my mind, you'll be able to download that book for free, a PDF copy of it. But he actually says in that book, he says, quote, Paul's words recall the exact language for freedom to remarry in ancient divorce contracts. And his readers, unable to be confused by modern writers' debates on this subject, would have understood his words thusly. So even here you have this guy who spent years and years studying, was uh, completely against any reason, or, or completely against the, the idea of divorce for, I mean, he believed in no exception, right? William Heth believed in no exception. And yet he ended up changing his mind because the deeper he studied, and really got into this, the more he realized there's no way that you could not parallel 1 Corinthians 7.15 with Exodus chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. So this in and of itself only proves one thing, and that is it was powerful enough to change William Heth's mind. Now, some people would say, well, that's not an argument in and of itself, but I will say when it changes someone's mind who is that studied, we should at least listen to... 
to it. Yeah. Yeah. To what it has to, to, to what they have to say. And so if you really just do a, do a straight reading of it, even within context, it's like, yeah, that seems like it's freeing the person from their marriage. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute now, didn't in first Corinthians seven though, Paul just say, you don't need to divorce. And now here he's saying in verse 15, if you are abandoned, then you're free to remarry. Is that not a contradiction? Is Paul not giving conflicting information? Well, the answer is, of course not. Paul's not giving conflicting information because Paul is dealing with two different situations. In 1 Corinthians 7, 10, 11, he's speaking to a Christian who is looking at leaving their spouse for just any reason, no lawful reason, in other words, they're going to aban- they're going to divorce their spouse unlawfully. And Paul's teaching against that. In 1 Corinthians 7, 15, he is speaking of someone who is being sinned against because they have been abandoned. And as Instone Brewer points out, this divorce has already taken place because they've already been abandoned. They've already been left. And so now what? Well, they are free to remarry another. They are free. They are no longer under bondage, which is William Heth pointed out, this is basically the same thing that would be in the contracts to allow remarriage. Now, there are some objections, <clears throat> excuse me, some objections to this. And the first objection, which because and by the way, these are objections I used to use. <laughs> and Lee, I don't know if you've heard some of these objections or not, but the first objection I used to use is that the word uh, dulo, which is the word used in First Corinthians seven fifteen, which is translated under bondage, is not speaking of the marriage bond. But if you look at the word, it is a slavery type bondage, and so. I used to believe that Paul wasn't even talking about the actual marriage bond here because of the Greek word that he uses. But the, this argument is really only a diversion because as I studied this further, I saw that the word dulo used here is derived from dio. Dio is used to describe the marriage bond in 1 Corinthians 7.39 in Romans chapter 7, verse 2. So they are actually two forms of the same term. So you don't really have an argument there. In fact, the Bible says that we are slaves to Christ, which is the same Greek word in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Uh, we see that in Romans 6, 18 and 22. We also see that in Romans 1, 1. We see some different forms of that word in Galatians 1, 10, Colossians 1, 7. And there was no more servitude higher than that of being a bondservant of Christ, yet being part of the church, we are the bride of Christ. And guess what? He is called our husband. The Christ is the husband of, of the church. And so 1 Corinthians 7-2, Paul made it a point to say that in marriage, each part or party owns the other. And the Greek terms that he uses here signify ownership in a slave way, not in a forced way, but in a way of, of bondage that the husband owns the wife and the wife owns the husband. And so what he's saying is now that your spouse has abandoned you, you no longer own them and they no longer own you. So Paul's point is that if a believer is neglected, which would be divorced in this context by a non-believer, then they are no longer married. They no longer possess a spouse, nor does their former spouse possess them. And once again, William Heth pointed out that this mirrors the protective law of Exodus 21, 7 through 11. And Professor William Luck said that Dio means the bond of marriage. It refers to the obligation of marriage, whereas Dulo refers to the condition of, of, of the person under Dio. That's all the difference the words imply. So when we see this first objection here of trying to say, well, this word is more of a slave than it is a marriage bond, that's simply not true. We see that when you actually dig a little deeper into the Greek that 
that argument is really a diversion. It's it's just not a very good argument because, as I said before, William Luck points out that 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 Dio does refer to the bond of marriage. It's used in First Corinthians seven thirty nine and Romans seven one through four, and of of course, as uh, as we pointed out, Dulo refers to the condition of the person who is under that Dio, and so that's really the only difference the words imply there. So that's not a very good argument. In fact, I would say that that's no argument at all. Well, that's an argument that I hadn't really ever heard before, before we, you know, discussed this and went through these notes and talked about this idea. But an argument and an objection that I have had is it's another argument that comes from the Greek. And and the idea is that in the Greek construct that Paul is saying, you are no longer under this type of bondage, nor were you ever under this kind of bondage to begin with. So that's the idea. That's another argument that I have heard utilized for that. And that really doesn't make sense in the context. Um, I haven't really heard anyone outside of the Church of Christ make that argument. I don't know if you ever have, but how would you go about breaking that idea down? I I used to actually make this argument because uh, a man by the name of Wayne Jackson makes this argument. And a friend of mine... Yeah, do you know Wayne Jackson? No, no, I I don't know Wayne Jackson. I have some of his books, though. He's got some good books. Yeah, so... Uh, he does. Wayne Jackson has a lot of good writings. So he uh, he's definitely not a Greek scholar, though. And so he is the one who actually makes this made this argument. And I, I have quoted Wayne Jackson in the past to say, well, look, this is what Wayne Jackson says. Therefore, it must be true. And a friend of mine actually wrote a track that has based all their information on what Wayne Jackson said. So when I was studying this, I wanted to know, is this the case? So I actually started to talk to Greek professors Nobody believes like this isn't an argument. This, in fact, every, when when I when I approach people with this argument, they look at me and they're like, "What are you talking about?" Or when they email me, when they email me back, they're like, "Why are you making this argument?" And I'm like, "Well, this is what this guy said, and I will just copy and paste what he said, and then they'll explain to me why it's incorrect." So I'll explain to you why, based upon Greek scholarship, not Kevin Pendergrass, because I am not a Greek scholar. In fact, I learned I'm not a Greek scholar. That's why now, instead of just listening to other people who they themselves are not Greek scholars, I now actually go to Greek scholars and people who teach Greek and not just people. That's a way better strategy, man. It really is, you know, and and people look at people like even myself when I was a, a former legalist and they said, wow, Kevin really knows what he's talking about. Well, I thought I knew what I was talking about, but here's the thing. I'm not a scholar. But what I'm what I'm doing is I'm giving you sources of people who actually are scholars in the field, meaning they have spent decades of their life doing nothing but focusing on this one topic of expertise. And so then when we talk about a subject, it's a lot better to turn to them to say, well, what do they say? Not just, well, my preacher said this. And he took a couple of years of Greek in preaching school. I took, I, yeah, I've taken Greek. I've, I took Hebrew and I took Greek. That doesn't mean that I can come up with all my different arguments that I want to. That doesn't make me a Greek scholar. So this idea here is that they believe that Paul is actually saying, you are no longer under bondage, nor were you ever under bondage like this. And Respectfully, this argument just doesn't make any sense in the Greek, nor does it make sense even from the context. So the phrase not in her bondage is in the is, is what's called the perfect tense. It's in the perfect tense in the Greek. The perfect tense in Greek is used to describe a completed action which produced results that are still in effect all the way up to the present. 
So notice that the perfect tense carries two ideas. Number one, there was an action that was completed. And then there are continuing results that are still happening because of that completed action. Does that make sense? It'd be like saying, I cut off my hand. That would be the completed action and the results of that, or I still don't have a hand. Yeah, you cut your hand off. That was the completed action. And the continuing result is you don't have a hand. So yeah. the action was completed at some time in the past, and the results continue up to the present. Now, to say that someone was never under bondage is to say that there never was an action that occurred or was completed. So if if you use the example, you cut your hand off, well, that by necessity meant that you had to cut your hand off, right? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. by necessity. So in order for you not to have a hand, at one point in time, your hand had to be removed. So yeah. this makes absolutely no sense. Paul didn't say, if you if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, 15, and if you like scripture text, or if you pull up the Greek, you're going to, you're going to see that Paul, Paul didn't say you were never under bondage. He said, you are no longer under bondage. This necessitates the fact that at one point in time, you were under bondage in your marriage, but something occurred, a completed action occurred to make that no longer the case. And that's still no longer the case. And so the completed action is that the unbelieving party left they divorced them. That was the completed action. And now the believing party is, is no longer under marital bondage, nor have they been under marital bondage since the time of the completed action of the unbelieving party leaving, which was the divorce. And so I, I really, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Wayne Jackson. I'm not trying to be dis disrespectful to others who perhaps have, have parroted that argument. I don't know of any Greek scholar who takes this seriously to say that Paul is saying that you were never under any kind of bondage at all. That that doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to have this little side note here just real fast. Whenever we talk about these arguments and we talk about the people that have made these arguments, we're naming those names so that you can look at those arguments for yourselves so that you can read what those folks have written. And like Kevin said, we mean no disrespect to Brother Jackson at all. We mean no disrespect to him and his work. He's written a lot of good things and he's made a lot of good arguments, but he's also made some poor arguments. But that's true of everybody. Whenever we look at these arguments and we pick them apart, it's funny because some people get upset and they feel like that if you are picking their argument apart, that you're attacking them and they take it personally. And in this, it's not personal. I mean, you can examine an argument on its merits and you can take it and turn it over in your hand, turn it over in your mind and just, you know, dissect it and blow it to smithereens. That doesn't mean that there's disrespect held towards the person that made the argument itself. So, you know, don't well, misunderstand. What, 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 let's even take Greek out of it. Okay. Let's even take Greek out of it. What reassurance would it be? to let someone know that they are no longer under a bondage they were never even under to begin with. Like, what, how is that reassuring to me? Like, yeah, yeah. Hey, good news. Well, you, you, you're not under bondage. Oh, by the way, you never were. Oh, well, thank goodness. That's great. That's like somebody calling me and saying, Kevin, there was a bill that you never owed and good news. You don't have to pay it. Hey, that's wonderful news. <laughs> well, and, like, and what good news is that's not good news. I never had to pay it to begin with. So why would you tell me, hey, there's a bill that you don't have to pay, but guess what? You you never owed it anyway. Well, well, that doesn't why would you spend the time telling me that? That doesn't and, and what good news? That's not good news. That doesn't bring me any peace. Paul says we're called to peace. If I already if if I was never under that bondage to begin with, then by telling me I was never under that bondage does nothing to further my current situation. 
It is nothing to fur- to to current it's, uh, to 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 make me feel at peace at all, which is what Paul ends up saying that Paul says that he's called us to peace. And so, the third objection there is another objection here, and that is that this isn't really so much like a a contextual objection. This is just more of what I call a principle objection that I've heard. And that is that Paul taught that only death could dissolve the marital union in Romans 7, 1 through 4 and 1 Corinthians 7, 39. And so since, since Paul taught that only death could dissolve the marital union, then that means that there's no reason adultery, abandonment, there's no reason for, for you to be able to divorce. You can't divorce and you can't remarry until the uh, original spouse dies. And they get that based upon Romans 7, 1 through 4, and 1 Corinthians 7, 39. Now, when it comes to the teachings of Paul on this idea that marriage is indissolvable, when they point to those passages, they they cherry-pick them. And I'm not being rude, I'm not trying to be ugly when I'm saying this, but they're not looking at the actual context, because even Romans 7, 1 through 4, Paul's not giving a discourse on marriage and divorce. In fact, divorce is not even mentioned in Romans 7. It's not even mentioned in the letter to the Romans at all. He is telling the Jews that they are no longer bound to the old law and have been freed. He does this by using an illustration from the law of Moses. And he said that in Romans 7, 1 through 6, he's speaking to the people who know the law. Well, many people do not know the law of Moses, much less the law of Moses on marriage and divorce, who try and interpret this passage to teach against marriage and divorce for any reason. They are, are to try to teach that you can never ever divorce your spouse. That's not the context of Romans 7. The passage only speaks about the wife. And why is that? Because Paul says, I'm only speaking to those who know the Jewish law. Under Jewish law, a man could have multiple wives under the old law, but a woman couldn't have multiple husbands. But if a husband divorced his wife, she could marry another without being an adulteress. And so Romans 7, 1 through 4 has nothing to do with teaching this idea of the indissolvability of marriage. That's not even the context. Romans 7, 1 through 4 isn't even dealing with divorce. Well, Paul, he's he's not really even dealing with marriage either. He's speaking no. a truth about the church and the nature of the church. And he's speaking of that old law of Moses and how that old law of Moses is no longer binding to those who are under faith in Christ. And he uses marriage as a figure of speech or as a metaphor for that idea. He uses that because they would have understood what that meant. And they would have understood that if you have someone who is in a marriage, they are bound in that marriage by law as long as their husband lives. But the law they understood also allowed for divorce. Well, there's no need for Paul to mention divorce there because it has nothing to do with the point that he's trying to make. So to say, well, because Romans 7 doesn't say anything about divorce, well, of course it doesn't. It it doesn't fit the analogy. It doesn't fit the point that Paul wants to make. So why would he mention it? It'd be like me trying to talk to you about you know, the best way to wire up your breaker box and telling you what kind of bathtub you need to do it. It doesn't make sense. Those things don't relate to one another. They don't work with each other. Well, and go go ahead. ahead. Well, the other passage that is brought up, because I just want to go kind of, clump these together because really it's it's the same idea as first Corinthians 739 now that we're back in first Corinthians and and the same idea is seen there where it says that a woman is bound to her husband for as long as he lives well that's true that under the Jewish law they would have understood that a man was was bound to her husband as long as he lived 
uh, or as long as she lived. Well, actually, as long as he lived, because a man under Jewish law could, as I stated before, could be married to, to multiple women. So this is why it's it's gender specific, because Paul is writing to those who know the Jewish law, and he's speaking from the perspective of Jewish law when he's making these statements. But he's just speaking a truth. It is true that a woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But what's also true is that if a man divorces his wife or if a divorce takes place, then she is no longer bound to him. And people say, well, wait a minute, Kevin, isn't that contradictory of 1 Corinthians 7.39? No, because Paul, once again, is not speaking about divorce. He's already, spe- he's already talked about divorce. In this case, he's speaking specifically about widows. That's his whole point. He's saying that, look, you you no longer have a husband, and so you can remarry. Why? Because, because he's di- he, he died. He's dead. And so this is a true statement, but nothing is said in this verse about divorce. Under the old law, if a woman had a husband, then she was bound to him. However, as noted above, when a divorce took place, they were no longer married, and they were no longer bound. And here's a perfect example that I like to use. Think about John four seventeen. The woman at the well She had had five husbands. She had been married and divorced five times, and she currently was unmarried. She was currently single. And this is what she told Jesus. And Jesus also agreed with her. Jesus told her, you are right. You have no husband. So if you were the woman at the well and you had talked to Jesus where Jesus told you, yeah, you've been married and divorced five times, and currently you're unmarried, and you have no husband, then is she going to read 1 Corinthians 7? and think that she is bound to a husband? Of course not. Jesus himself told this woman, you have no husband, so how can you be bound to a husband you no longer have? So Paul's not talking about divorce in 1 Corinthians 7.39. Paul's not talking about divorce in Romans 7, 1 through 4. When people take these passages and cherry-pick them, and as you said, put them in charts and all this other stuff, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. You really can. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say unless you look at the context. And so Paul never taught that divorce uh, does not dissolve a marriage. In fact, he very clearly taught that it does dissolve a marriage. In 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, in relation to this idea of the freedom, Instone Brewer states that the only freedom that makes any sense in this context is the freedom to remarry. The first century readers, whether they were Jewish or Greco-Roman, Paul's words would immediately remind them of the freedom to remarry. This is also the meaning that fits best in the context of this passage. Paul's just spoken about a believer who has been divorced against his or her will, and so the natural question is whether or not this person was allowed to remarry. The word, the brother or sister is not bound in this situation, answers that question and allows for remarriage. Yeah, and it, to me, it's crystal clear. And and on another note, on First Corinthians seven and thirty nine, it's interesting that whenever the Apostle Paul references this, you know, speaking of of widows, that whenever her husband dies, she's at liberty to ma- to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. According to In Stone Brewer, this is a play off of the wording on these divorce contracts that took place. You know, those divorce um, decrees or divorce certificates would state that the woman was free to marry any man she wished, any Jewish man she wished, some of them would say. And so the fact that the Apostle Paul quotes that in saying that this woman is free, to me, that's a pretty good indicator, contextually speaking, that Paul recognized the veracity of those divorce certificates, and he recognized that they did dissolve the marriage. 
So to say that based on you know, 1 Corinthians 7.39, or based on Romans 7, verses 1 through 4, that the Apostle Paul is speaking to the dissolubility of marriage and that marriage cannot be dissolved at all, it takes it out of context. But in this sense, we've really covered what the Apostle Paul has said. And if we just briefly recap really fast before we move on, we see that the Apostle Paul is saying that there are two classes of people. There are married and there are unmarried. Because of the present distress, whatever state you find yourself in, stay that way. If you're married, stay married. If you're unmarried, stay unmarried. But if you're tempted, it's not a sin for you to go ahead and marry. If you were unmarried and you were tempted, go ahead and remarry. And under that classification of unmarried people, you have those who have never been married. You have those who have been widowed and you have those who have been divorced. That's what unmarried means. It's a universal statement. So yeah, no one about- saw no one saw the divorced as a different kind of unmarried. Yeah, uh, in they, fact, they, the uh, the divorced and the widowed were put under the same category in the Old Testament. Uh, if you were a priest, you could not marry a woman who was not a virgin. You couldn't marry a, a prostitute. You couldn't marry a divorced woman, and you couldn't marry a widow woman. And so the reason why all that's interesting is because, and by the way, there's even a lot of some, some exceptions to those rules too, but we don't, that's a completely different subject. But here's the point is that it would be the same thing. The, the idea here is that if you are a widow, if you're unmarried, I mean, excuse me, if you're an, a, a widow, if you were divorced or whatever, you were considered unmarried. There, there, yeah. wasn't, there wasn't a, a different category of unmarried uh, that pe- people would just say, look, if you're, if you're divorced, you're unmarried. If you've never, if you're a virgin, you're unmarried. If your spouse has died, you're unmarried. All of those categories would conclude if you were in, if you were, had experienced any of those situations, the conclusion would be you were unmarried. So, well, so here's even what, so, even so you still have this idea of the divorce being unmarried. You still have the apostle Paul giving some special instructions to those who are divorced. So that leads us to kind of the next point that we need to get to. What about Paul saying that people who are divorced should remain unmarried or be reconciled to their former spouse? Because there are some who promote this idea. I know I promoted this idea, and this is what I taught as truth, is the idea that if you do divorce for any reason other than adultery, any reason at all, that you should remain unmarried forever for celibacy that we already discussed, or you can be reconciled to your former spouse. So how do we drill that down? How do we approach that idea of this instruction being given to those who are divorced? What does that mean within the context itself? This text here in 1 Corinthians 17 11, I believe is probably the only text, the, uh, I won't say only, the main text that people use to say this is why we believe that someone who has been divorced specifically unscripturally, if you divorce unscripturally, that you can never, ever uh, remarry, at least until your your former spouse dies. So they go to 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 to, to teach that. So let's talk about this, because I love this passage, and I hope people listening who have that same question that you just asked, I hope they listen carefully, because we're about to, to really delve into this, and really no other way than Lee and Kevin know how to, and that's in great depth. So let's talk about it. <laughs> and in so, lots of Words. So first of all, this text is different than 1 Corinthians 7.15 because 1 Corinthians 7.10.11 is dealing, it seems to be, most people agree, with Christians who are married. 
Whereas 1 Corinthians 7.15 is speaking of a Christian who is married to a non-believer. So 1 Corinthians 7.10.11, let's just going to assume if you disagree with me, that's okay. But I'm just going to go ahead and make that assumption. I believe that's a pretty... Uh, pretty fair assumption to make. Fair assumption, yeah, to make that Paul is speaking of of Christians in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, 11. So you have two Christians and they're married. One of them wants to divorce unlawfully. Uh, In fact, historically, there's even reason to believe that some people may have actually pointed to the present-day distress to say, I want a divorce. To, to say, look, since there is present-day stress coming, I want a divorce. And that's why Paul said, no, you don't have a right to divorce. You don't have moral grounds. Pointing to a present-day distress is not moral grounds for divorce. So Paul says, don't do it. But what if they did it? What if, what if you divorced without moral grounds? What should you do? Well, Paul says that you should either remain unmarried or you should be reconciled to your former spouse. That's so, a very, very important distinction. So, Paul, the purpose, oh, go ahead. Uh, the purpose of remaining unmarried is towards reconciliation. The purpose is reconciliation. That is the desirable end goal of all of this, and that is especially important to note. Yeah. Well, and don't get ahead. Don't let's not get ahead. Hold on. Let's oh, let's no, let's build want, it up I want, now. <laughs> I want to plant that seed from the very beginning. That yeah. Is, Paul's making because that cannot be stressed hard enough, man. Yeah. So, so let, let's just assume, okay. So Paul's teaching that if a Christian does unlaw, you shouldn't do it. By the way, Paul's not talking to divorced people in first Corinthians 7, 10, 11. He's talking to a married person. This is case law. Again, he's saying, I'm specifically saying to the married, do not divorce unlawfully. But if you do remain unmarried or be reconciled. So, Number one, Paul says that if they divorce, they are unmarried. So Paul himself acknowledges that this is a divorce, that they are unmarried. They no longer are married. This means that divorce, even when unlawful, according to God's standard, still results in both parties being unmarried. Now, some try and point to the phrase, be reconciled to your husband to show that they were still married even after the divorce because the word husband is used. However, This is not how the first century audience would have understood Paul's words. First, Paul just said after the divorce, they were unmarried. So all divorces dissolved marriages, and this is the only way the audience would have understood divorce. So the fact that Paul said that after the divorce, they are unmarried means that is how Paul understood divorce too. But second, why then, we have to still ask ask and answer the question, why would Paul say return to your husband? Well, first of all, this is hypothetical time. So at the point of Paul writing this, you would still be technically married to them because you had not even divorced them at this point. Does that make sense? Okay. But even then, it wasn't uncommon after you were divorced or after your spouse died to refer to someone as your spouse, someone you were still married to, even when you weren't still married to them. It was just a common idiom, a common way of talking. This doesn't mean that you believe they were still married. This was just an idiom of the day. And quite frankly, it's still common today to speak in this way. And and give us, Lee, a a couple of of examples. And while you do that, I'm going to go plug my computer up because, as always, we're talking a little bit longer than uh than than probably we need to and so my computer is dying so i'll be back in like 30 seconds but go ahead and take it away how we roll up in here though but this idea for biblical writers to speak of their former spouses as husband and wife you see that even in scripture 
I mean, and, and just like you said, that didn't mean that they believed that they were still married or that they were still married in the eyes of God. It was a figure of speech that they used. We still use that same figure of speech today. And you see this in the scriptures. I mean, we remember the story of, of David and his grievous sin that he committed against Uriah the Hittite. You know, he goes out on his balcony. He looks down. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He commands her to come to him. He commits adultery and she ends up with child. And he tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah home and getting Uriah good and sloshed and having him go and lay with his wife. And then David's going to be scot-free. But Uriah, he's like, nope, I'm not leaving my men behind. So David has him killed so he can take Bathsheba to wife and, and all of that good stuff. Even after Uriah has died, and even after David has taken Bathsheba as his wife, Bathsheba is still referred to as the wife of Uriah. She's still referred to as Uriah's wife. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel verses 12, or chapter 12 and verses 10 and in verse 15. Uriah had died. She was not his wife in a current sense, but in a former sense. And even in the New Testament, you see this. Whenever Ananias and Sapphira, whenever they sin against the Holy Spirit and lie about what they were going to give, we see that Ananias was struck dead whenever he comes to Peter and Peter questions him about this idea about what they're going to give to the church and whatever else. And he speaks as, as if it's the truth. He's struck dead. Sapphira comes in afterward. Ananias is already dead. So even if you take a no exception view that death is the only thing that dissolves a marriage, at this point, Ananias is dead. Sapphira is not married anymore. And yet the Bible still refers to her as Ananias's wife. Ananias was still called Sapphira's husband after he died. It wasn't in a current sense. It was in a former sense. In the same way, whenever Paul says this idea, be reconciled to your husband, the same idiomatic um, syntax, that same concept still holds true. The semantic domain of that word also looks into the past within this context. So the point is, is that using the word husband and wife, it doesn't mean that you're still married. It's commonly used to speak of former spouses, past relationships, and not current ones. Paul was speaking of being reconciled and remained or remarried rather to your former spouse about being reconciled unto them, marry them again. He's not saying that you can divorce your spouse unlawfully, but if you do divorce your spouse unlawfully, you need to stay unmarried or you need to be reconciled back to your former spouse. I would even go so far to say is you need to remain unmarried to the point of, or to the end of pursuing that reconciliation. So I think the next question then is, well, do you have any comments about any of that? Yeah, no, I think you did a great job. Uh, part of that's because I didn't hear some of it, but I'm sure you did wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, throw me under the bus. <laughs> but I did hear the latter part. And yeah, no, I think that you did a great job explaining that. The bottom line is that during during that time period, the culture and hundreds of years, well, thousands of years before and hundreds of years after, once you were divorced, you were unmarried, and Jesus wasn't teaching anything new. Paul wasn't teaching anything new. Paul acknowledged that. Jesus acknowledged that in Matthew 19, 6, where he said, What God has joined together, let not man separate, uh, meaning that man can separate. And, and in doing so, they would be unmarried. And so there's really nothing that is, that is different uh, than their teaching that's at the culture of their time. Paul's just saying, Hey, if you divorce... Don't do it, but if you do, you're unmarried, and now that you're unmarried, you need to either remain unmarried or you need to um, you need to uh, reconcile. And so the question is, was Paul forbidding remarriage 
remarriage for the divorced? And because that's that's really the question. Was Paul forbidding remarriage at this time? Uh, and by saying that you either need to re- remain unmarried or reconcile, was he saying there is no other option? And And some have taken this admonishment to be restrictive, forbidding remarriage to another spouse, because in the Greek, this is what is known as an imperative. And you and I have talked about this. We don't believe that this is a restrictive imperative. And why is that? Well, because the first thing that we know is that specifically speaking about those who did the unlawful divorcing, that's who Paul's talking about. He's not talking to one who was divorced on. He's not talking to one who was sinned against. He's speaking about those who did the unlawful divorcing in the first sense. Uh, Secondly, to say that Paul's condemning the remarriage of a person who was unlawfully divorced and sinned against, that runs into the same problems and inconsistencies that we talked about in gory detail last week. You're going to be punishing the innocent for the sins of the guilty. It's going to be contradicting the justice of God, the moral law that God put into place to protect the innocent. And if maybe that's raising some eyebrows in your mind. Go back and listen to our episode last week if you haven't. Maybe you're intimidated by that two-hour-plus runtime. Don't be. It's good stuff. Go and listen to it, and this will make a lot more sense. God put these laws in place to protect the innocent. This understanding wouldn't make any sense within the cultural context in which it was written if Paul is making this a restrictive imperative across the board. Well, and if you notice... Well, I was going to say, if you notice, Paul didn't tell both parties to remain unmarried. No, he, he didn't. He, he told the the, offend, the the offending party, the one who unlawfully divorced their spouse, he told them that they need to remain unmarried or be reconciled. And we talked about how the word reconciliation, the word reconcile, always carries the idea of the the offending party. If you're if you're wrecking, if you're being the one being reconciled, then you're the one who did what. The, the thing that was wrong, whatever is under consideration. And so it just, that, that is something so important because we look at first Corinthians 7, 10, 11. And first of all, we want to make this like a generic statement that everybody who's been divorced, unless it's been for a justifiable reason, they either have to remain in marriage. They have to reconcile. Well, Paul didn't say that to everybody. He only gave that instruction to the person who actually did the offending. He didn't say that yeah. to the innocent. He doesn't even talk about the innocent other than just don't do it. Same thing in Jesus' teaching. But here's something, Lee, that I find very interesting. So not all imperatives are restrictive. And there are many examples that can be provided. But here's the cool thing. We don't even have to leave the context to demonstrate this. And some people say, well, what do you mean restrictive, Kevin? What exactly? Do you, I mean, if, if an imperative is an imperative, doesn't that mean you have to do it? No, it does not. And here's how we can know that. Paul uses an imperative in 1 Corinthians 7, 27 when he says, Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. That is an imperative. In the Greek, that is an imperative. Do not seek a wife. But he goes on to say, Even if you do marry, though, you have not sinned. So while Paul used an imperative to say, Do not seek a wife, he was not using that imperative to restrict a new marriage if that person did want another marriage. And so by saying do not seek a wife in the imperative form in the Greek, he was not condemning someone if they did remarry. But also, Paul says that if someone became a Christian when uncircumcised, then they are not to be circumcised. He says this in 1 Corinthians seven eighteen. He says, let them not be circumcised. That's an imperative. Same thing. 
Was Paul then actually restricting circumcision here? Was he saying that it's wrong, it's a sin to be circumcised once you become a Christian? No, because Paul had Timothy circumcised. So restrictives, when someone says, or I'm sorry, an imperative, when someone says that this is an imperative in the Greek, that does not mean that it's always a restrictive imperative. And so we can't automatically assume in 1 Corinthians 17, 11, when Paul says either remain unmarried or be reconciled, that he is meaning to exclude and be restrictive, and he is excluding any other option, specifically the option of remarriage, because that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that if you divorce unlawfully, then remain unmarried. Don't go running off and getting married to someone else. Guess what Paul's trying to do? He's trying to disrupt the sinful process both he and Jesus condemned. This adulterous process of divorcing without moral grounds and marrying somebody else. That's this whole process of unlawfully divorcing your spouse in order to marry someone else. So Paul is trying to disrupt this whole process. So he says, if you do go and divorce unlawfully, you've already sinned. But the, but please don't compound this by then going and marrying somebody else. You need to get back with your spouse. You need to get back with your sport, former spouse. Don't go and remarry another Remain unmarried and work things out with your former spouse so you can be reconciled and remarried back to them. That's Paul's point. But we have to realize that not all imperatives are always restrictive because here's the question. What happens, Lee, if reconciliation is unattainable? What happens, let's say that I'm married and I just no longer want to be married to my wife. I have, I have no justifiable reason. I have no moral ground. She's not committed adultery. She's not abandoning me. She wants to stay with me. She, she's, she's not out saying, hey, I'm done with this. But for whatever reason, I'm just done with it. No moral reason, no moral grounds, no lawful grounds. I'm done with it. So I divorce her. And then I'm thinking, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. That was a sin. I didn't have moral grounds. That was sinful for me to do that. So I need to, I need to go back and I need to try to work things out with her. What happens if I go back to her and I see that reconciliation is unattainable, perhaps even impossible? Maybe my former maybe maybe my former spouse refuses to take me back. Maybe because I have abandoned her at that point, she has now already remarried. Perhaps she's even died. We can't say Paul is putting forth a universal statement here because it doesn't cover many situations or many questions. So what if reconciliation is unattainable? Are we to conclude then that your only option at that point is to remain unmarried the rest of your life? Because that's what some of our brethren conclude. That is what some of them conclude. But as we mentioned earlier in this episode, that runs counter to what Jesus taught. That runs counter to what Paul taught. I mean, they both clearly taught that in some cases that is a desirable position to put oneself in, but it's not a required position to put oneself in. Not all can hear this saying, Jesus said. And the Apostle Paul even says it's better to marry than to burn. But the point that Paul makes that we do know that he makes is that if you divorce unlawfully, you should remain unmarried and you should remain unmarried so that you can seek reconciliation with your spouse. But if that reconciliation is unattainable, to me, it seems as though that the only obvious conclusion is that if reconciliation is unattainable, you are considered unmarried and that there is an allowance to remarry in that case. I mean, Paul doesn't answer those questions that you just asked. You know, what if your spouse doesn't take you back? What if your spouse has already remarried? 
you know, what, what do you do in that situation? He doesn't have anything specifically to say about that in this verse, because there was no need to emphasize the right to remarry after every statement, because as we have discussed in its context, culturally, socially, and historically, it was a firmly established right to remarry of a divorced person. Anyone who had divorced could remarry under both Jewish law and Greco-Roman culture. Paul did establish the right of remarriage or the right of marriage to unmarried persons in other verses throughout the chapter. We have gone through this chapter. We have hit it point by point by point. And in every instance, Paul is reestablishing the right to marry. Paul's concern in this chapter isn't to forbid marriages. And like you said, in Timothy, he calls that a doctrine of demons. His purpose is to teach that a believer should not be the cause of an unlawful divorce. And wouldn't you know it, that's the same thing Jesus taught. A believer shouldn't be the cause of an unlawful divorce, either by divorcing their spouse without any moral grounds whatsoever, or by neglect, or even by abuse. A well, believer here- should not be involved in any of that. When you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, and personally, I don't know if you've, I really have never asked you this, but I know among some of the brethren, my very small bubble that I was a part of who who taught this, they would actually say that it was okay to divorce as long as you remain unmarried. Yeah, yeah, we and would so, take the same position, and we so, would say the same thing. A lot of us. Anyway. So, so basically, you would come, you would come to a preacher, or you'd come to your eldership or your leadership, and say, "Look, I'm just kind of, man, I'm just kind of over getting being married. You know, I, I'm not going to remarry. I have no desire to remarry. I'm just done. I'm just, I, I didn't really realize what I was getting myself into. This marriage thing stinks. I like eating." you know, my, my, my food on my, in my bed, my wife doesn't like that. You know, I get crumbs everywhere. (laughs) It's just, I don't know. I just don't like this anymore. I like being able to, to, to just live my own life. And so what do I need to do? Here's what most people would say. Well, you really don't need to, but if you can divorce, you just, it's not right. And you really shouldn't do it. But as long as you don't get remarried, yeah, that's okay. And so we're not really saying it's okay. We're not giving permission to divorce, but we're basically saying you can say you can actually divorce, ask God to forgive you, and just remain unmarried the rest of your life. So what we end up doing is legalizing sin. We actually use 1 Corinthians 7, 10, 11 not to encourage people to stay together, but to say you can divorce as long as you don't get remarried. And that was not Paul's point. Paul was not saying you can divorce as long as you remain unmarried. His point was don't divorce. If you do divorce, remain unmarried so you can go back to the person you were once married to. So Paul's Paul's not legalizing sin here. He's not saying, well, you know, you shouldn't divorce if you do. If you do, though... Uh, just remain unmarried. It's all good. No, well, Paul's po- that's not Paul's point. Well, and here's what's so interesting to me is that that entire construct, that entire argument flies in the face of what Jesus taught. The idea that treacherous divorce, unlawful divorce is considered adultery is a scriptural concept that we discussed in a previous episode. I mean, whenever we made that statement, well, you know, if you don't like the way they cook the beans or if you don't like the way they make the bed or you're just tired of living with the person, you can't stand the sound of their laugh. Maybe you're married to a woman and she laughs like Fran Drescher and you just can't stand being married to her or hearing her laugh for another second. And you just, you're like, I just can't take anymore. I'm going to divorce her. That's a treacherous divorce. That's a divorce without any moral grounds. And Jesus said that if you divorce your spouse without moral grounds, you're committing adultery. Yeah, against them. You're, you're, yeah. Matthew says it and Mark says it. And so you're committing adultery against them. And we're essentially saying 
well, you know what? You can divorce them as long as you remain unmarried, you're cool. We're essentially saying with that line of argumentation, that previous line that you and I both followed and that others follow, that you can go ahead and commit adultery against your spouse. That's cool. And that flies in the face of what the scriptures teach. Well, we've made the emphasis remarriage, whereas Jesus and Paul made it marriage. We we yeah. we we've made it about just as long as you don't remarry. You know, you can you can divorce, just don't remarry. And 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 we won't even say you can. We would just say, well, if you do, that's okay. Just don't get remarried because we think the emphasis. And when I say we, I don't mean me and you. I mean the way that some in our brotherhood see things. The way we used to see things was the idea that you could, you, as, as long as you did not remain unmarried, or, or excuse me, as long as you did remain unmarried, as long as you did not remarry, you were okay. Regardless of what you did in the marriage, regardless if you divorced, you probably shouldn't have maybe done some things, but just remain unmarried. So we put all the emphasis there. But Paul's instruction is given in hopes of reconciliation not to justify people to be able to just remain unmarried because they don't want to be married. Well, That's his whole point. Wanting, yeah, and he's not wanting to forbid any and all future marriage either. Well, especially the innocent, context. because he's not even talking yeah. about the innocent here. He's only talking about the one who did the sinning. So William Luck, he, he said here that we should understand Paul to be saying, really, not, not in the Greek, but just interpret the meaning to be, remain unmarried as long as reconciliation is attainable. In other words, Paul is not giving an out to people who do not want to be married by saying, if you don't want to be married, just divorce and remain unmarried. What he's saying is, if you want to divorce, then you can't. It's wrong. It's wrong. But if you do divorce unlawfully, then you need to reconcile. You need to remain unmarried as long as reconciliation is attainable. So the reason you remain unmarried, according to the context, is twofold. First, let's not forget, Paul advised all who were unmarried to remain unmarried during the present crisis, including the virgin and the widow. So, of course, Paul would also advise those who were divorced to remain unmarried, even more so, because he wants them to reconcile. But second, the reason Paul instructs this was in hopes to keep reconciliation alive after the unlawful divorce. Here's what a lot of people forget, is that when you look at the context of this, Let's not forget that people understood once someone remarried, there was no longer uh, option to reconcile. So if, yeah. some, if someone did remarry, there was no reconciliation. You could no longer reconcile that past relationship because now a new covenant had been entered. We don't like that because that conflicts with perhaps some of our modern understandings, but that's how they would have understood it. So Paul's point is don't go, go, don't, please don't go and get remarried because in doing so, you no longer could be reconciled. That, 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 that destroys the opportunity for reconciliation. So we're then left though with the question, what if reconciliation is unattainable? What if I go back and I go, look, I'm, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. And then my spouse, my former spouse doesn't want to take me back. Or what happens if they've already remarried? What happens even if they die? You know, there's a lot of different scenarios we could put in here. The, pro the bottom line is, for whatever reason, if reconciliation is unattainable, then what? Then do I have to remain unmarried? And I believe the answer is absolutely no. Because people read Paul's instructions of saying remain unmarried or reconciled. I mean, if you can't reconcile, then you must remain unmarried. But William Luck points out, this is a reading only a 21st century reader would understand. 
This is not the way a first century reader would understand this. They would understand this to be this. Remain unmarried or be reconciled, meaning that if you can't reconcile, then there is no longer a reason to remain unmarried other than the present day distress. Yes, and and that's the entire point of this. The purpose of remaining unmarried is to pursue reconciliation. But if pursuing reconciliation is impossible, then you're no longer required to remain unmarried. I mean, the purpose of getting a driver's license is to be able to drive a car. But you don't have to have a car to have a driver's license. If you get rid of your car and you're like, you know what, I'm not ever going to drive a car again. If it's impossible for me to drive a car, there's no reason for you to have a driver's license anymore. The purpose for that has passed. The reason for the license is something that you're no longer engaging in. If you can't reconcile to your former spouse, either they refuse to take you back or they themselves have remarried and moved on, then that doesn't mean that you are you know, bound to stay unmarried for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that you're then bound to yourself or bound to celibacy. It doesn't mean that at all. But yeah, as you were saying, if, if reconciliation is unattainable, then then no, it would not be a sin to remarry at that point. And, and that's what I want to emphasize is that based upon the social and literary context, nobody in the first century would have believed that it would have been a sin to marry either. That's why Paul's saying, remain unmarried. He's, say, he's saying that because they had a right to remarry, and he knew that if they did remarry, then they could no longer reconcile. There would be no chance of reconciliation. There would be no more opportunity of reconciliation. So Paul was saying that, please reconcile, remain unmarried so you can be reconciled. I love the illustration you used about the driver's license and driving a car. If I'm not going to drive a car, there's no need of me to have a license unless I just need identification for whatever reason. But yeah, we understand that car for way cheaper. <laughs> but we understand that the 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 there's there's this process here that Paul is getting at, and that is the reason you remain unmarried is so that you can reconcile. But if there is no longer opportunity for reconciliation, if it's unattainable, and I can just hear some people say, "Well, brother Kevin." With God's help, there's always, always possibility of reconciliation. I've heard people say, I go, I've even heard people preach it. They go, you know, brothers and sisters, with God's help, there's always possibility of reconciliation. They say it like that too. But, you know, the, 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 that, 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 that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. But we have about, mm, I don't know, what, six, seven, eight thousand years of history showing that oftentimes hearts are not going to be changed. Yeah. And, by the way, people want to look at 1 Corinthians 7.15 and say that sh- this is kind of changing subjects just for a moment. But if your spouse neglects you, they say, well, that's only the unbeliever. Well, Paul says that if you that there are some people when they sin and they leave the faith, they're worse than an unbeliever. So obviously, Paul would be speaking of anyone who's no longer acting Christ-like, so no one who's, who's following Christ anymore. But getting back to 1 Corinthians 7 verse 11... At that point, if you have neglected, if you have divorced your spouse unlawfully by neglecting them, by whatever reason, if you have, if you have divorced your spouse and you realize that was wrong, you realize that was sin, and you've asked God to forgive you, and you've gone back to try to reconcile, and that reconciliation was not attainable, was not possible, and only you can decide that. Only those in that situation can decide that. You, that that needs to ha- there needs to be counsel involved. There needs to be a lot of prayer involved. I'm, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you how long that needs to be, or anything like that, because that would get back into legalism. But I do believe there needs to be attempts. But if you realize that it's not going to happen for whatever reason, it's unattainable. At that point, 
at that point, you would not be in sin if you remarried. Even Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 7. He says it over and over and over and over. He says it at least five times or, or four times, maybe five. But he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 20 and 29, if you marry, you have not sinned. So let me reiterate why I believe this. For starters, Paul tells the unmarried that they can marry. And those who are divorced are considered unmarried, even according to Paul. So let's look at the simple logic here. If the unmarried can marry and the divorced are unmarried, then guess what? The divorced can remarry. Yeah. Um, uh, Once again, imagine being the woman at the well who met Jesus in John 4, 17, when he told her that she had no husband. She had been divorced five times, but she had no husband and was unmarried. If she would have heard Paul's letter, there would have been no other way she could have understood his instruction as any other way than to allow for a remarriage. She certainly wouldn't have tried to reconcile at that point. Who would you even reconcile with, right? You've had five. So at that point, she would be unmarried. And not just at that point, but when she was divorced, she'd be unmarried. But also, there's no reconciliation left. And so she would have a right to remarry at that point. Regardless of how many times you've been married or divorced, if you're divorced, you're considered unmarried according to Jesus, Paul, and the culture at the time. And if you're unmarried, then to forbid a marriage is to teach a doctrine of demons. But people who are divorced are unmarried, and the unmarried can marry. Now, as I said before, there would have been no other way the audience would have understood that. In Stone Brewer, William Luck, William Heth, and others have all made the argument from, and these guys have spent years studying this. This is what they've studied. This is their expertise. They're not this just is their wife's work in some yeah, sense. Yeah. They're, they're not just Bible students because sometimes when we say scholars, people go, "Well, you know, I know scholars. You may know general Bible scholars, but I'm talking about an expertise because there's a lot of fields within biblical study that you can you can you can be an expert in. These guys are experts in the field of marriage, divorce, and remarriage." culturally, socially, linguistically during this time. So they all say, all of them agree. And by the way, they don't agree on a lot of things. They don't because there's a lot of different points they do disagree on, but they all agree that there would have been no other way the first century audience would have understood Paul's instructions. And they certainly wouldn't have understood it to be forbidding marriage perpetually for the rest of their lives if reconciliation was not possible. There would have been no way that they would have understood that unless Paul would have explicitly and specifically said so. Since he did not, and since he gave explicit permission for the unmarried to marry, and within the same chapter he calls divorced people unmarried, then we cannot understand Paul to be forbidding marriage to the divorce. So Paul's instruction was not condemning remarriage. It was commanding reconciliation. But if reconciliation was no longer attainable, then the instruction to remain unmarried would at that point become frivolous other than it was the present day distress and Paul was telling everybody to remain unmarried because it's better, but it would not be a sin at that point if they remarry. Now, Lee, here's where people, if they're paying attention, in fact, if you're not asking this question, you're probably not paying attention <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because here's where people go, whoa, 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 Kevin, hold on. You just said that if someone divorces unlawfully, that they, if they remarry, have not sinned. Does that not directly fly in the face of what Jesus taught? And even what you and Lee taught, Kevin, is that not just contradictory to say that at that point? Lee, why does that not contradict what Jesus had to say about remarriage? Brother, I wrestled with that idea for a while. And this was the biggest thing that kept me, that I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And then one day reading this, 
just looking at the scriptures, you know, I wasn't even reading someone else's book. It just, it just clicked because Jesus isn't speaking about he's not speaking about remarriage here. Jesus isn't mentioning this at all in Jesus's remarriage teaching. He's speaking to the specific situation that we spent so much time discussing in previous episodes. And he's talking about the sinful process of married people who were divorcing unlawfully in order to remarry someone else. They saw this little piece of tail over here and they were going to divorce their spouse so that they could go and chase this other person. The purpose behind their divorce was to leave their old spouse behind to get someone new. That was a treacherous divorce as it's referred to in Malachi. That process was sinful, but the new marriage itself would not be. Jesus didn't condemn a single remarriage in and of itself. He condemned the unlawful act and process of how the remarriage was attained because it broke the first marriage. That's what Jesus was condemning. In other words, the new marriage itself was not sinful, but the way in which it was attained was sinful and it was considered adultery. You know, it's not a sin for me to have a car in my possession, but it would be a sin for me to go and steal someone's car. Having a car isn't wrong, but stealing it would be. And one of the one of the analogies that you use, remember we had talked about this before, I really like it, is using unwed pregnancy as an example. You know, being pregnant is not a sin whether you're married or whether you're not being pregnant, even though you're not married out of wedlock is not in and of itself a sin, but the process of getting pregnant out of wedlock is sinful. It's fornication. It's wrong, but being pregnant, giving birth to the child, keeping the child and raising that child is not fornication. That is not sinful. But the way in which that child was brought into this world, the way in which that child was conceived, I should say, was fornication. It was sin. Having the new marriage itself isn't adultery, but the process, the way in which that new marriage came to be was sinful. And it was adulterous because it should have never happened in the first place. It broke up a marriage. It violated that code. It violated that contract. It was egregiously sinful in God's sight, but the new marriage, not so much. It took place for the new marriage to happen. So the new marriage itself wasn't sinful. The process that led to it was. Well, we'll get into this a lot more next week when we begin to really kind of conclude everything by talking about what repentance demands. Because the way that I always put it is that Jesus is speaking of marriages that are conceived through adultery. In other words, this is a whole adulterous process and it's sinful in the way it took place. Just like if, yeah. if, if a child was conceived in fornication. The child was the result, and had the sin never taken place, the child would have never happened. But now that it has happened, it was a reality, and that parent or those parents should continue their relationship with the child. They shouldn't abort the baby. They shouldn't give up the baby for adoption, thinking that that's repentance. In the same way, if someone has committed uh, or has, has ended up in a marriage and it was conceived, that marriage through adultery, that mar- it was that was sinful the way in which that marriage was obtained because you had to divorce someone unlawfully in order to obtain that new marriage it shouldn't have happened it's wrong it was a sin it was conceived through adultery but now that that new marriage is intact that new covenant's intact you need to continue in that marriage the best to your ability and we're going to talk about that a lot more next week but you know i i personally stay away from illustrations about you you brought up about the car cuz people are going to say well if you steal a car you need to give it back and things like that and i always talk about 
yeah. David and David and Bathsheba. You know, I, I always joke and I go, well, if your illustration's correct, you steal a car, you need to give it back. Then in the illustration, of David and Bathsheba, you would say, just kill the owner, and then you'll you won't have to to get it to give it back. <laughs> <laughs> that'll that'll just take care of everything. But you know, because so because I think sometimes using illustrations, we can get a little. Uh, it, it can get it yeah, can get confusing, you know, sometimes. Yeah, you start, but yeah, you just start focusing on the semantics instead of the point. Yeah, you know, the point remains the same. But the idea of an unwed pregnancy—that is such a good representation of this. It's a way better illustration than the car illustration is. Well, but here's where I really want to nail things down for folks to understand. Jesus and Paul are dealing with with different questions in different scenarios. So if someone is married and they but but by the way they're teaching the same thing they're just they're just applying it in different different uh situations. So if you're married and you divorce without moral grounds, you've already committed adultery against your spouse according to Matthew chapter 5 verse 31 and Mark chapter 10 verse 11. You've already committed adultery against them. The reason why people were divorcing is because they had someone else they were going to. And that's why Jesus said he assumes that you're you're going to marry someone else. So it's already a sin that you've done that. But then when you remarry somebody else, they're just as guilty too. Now, here's where people want to try to ask the question, well, if that's the case, why would Paul say it's not a sin to marry if you've been divorced? And in our case, that we're arguing even unlawfully divorced, even if you're the one who did the unlawful divorce. Here's why. In Jesus' situation, he is actually speaking of the process of those who are divorcing unlawfully and remarrying other people. That is a sin. That is a sin. Paul is talking about people who have already been divorced, and they are currently unmarried, and they are not able to reconcile. In that case, if they remarry, they have not sinned. In fact, I believe that if someone disobeyed Paul, and they divorced, and they did not remain unmarried. They did not attempt reconciliation. They divorced their spouse unlawfully, and they went to marry someone else. That's exactly what Jesus condemned, and that's exactly what Paul's teaching against. He's trying to disrupt that. But after you've already divorced unlawfully, if you've gone back to try to reconcile, and reconciliation at that point is no longer available, you need to know, first of all, you did sin. You did commit adultery against your spouse when you divorced them. You've already sinned, so you need to repent and ask God to forgive you. But number two, if you've tried to reconcile, but that's not available, that's not the same situation Jesus is speaking of, because Jesus is speaking of a situation where the person has already divorced and already remarried. Paul's speaking of those who have remained unmarried, but what happens if reconciliation is not available or it's not attainable? At that point, if you remarry, you have not sinned. So Jesus is speaking of this process. Paul's talking about disrupting the process. If the process has been disrupted, you need to go back and reconcile. But if reconciliation cannot happen, if it's unattainable, if it's impossible, whatever, then if you remarry at that point, you have not sinned. And that makes perfect sense whenever we consider it in those terms. When we consider it contextually, it makes sense. On its surface, with a, just a general um, straightforward reading of Jesus and a straightforward reading of Paul, you see conflict, you see contradiction, but whenever context is taken into account, you see harmonization, you see everything fitting hand in glove. And in this, we see in general, the principles that undergird marriage. We see the principles that undergird the scriptural reasons, the moral reasons for divorce 
And we also recognize the right to remarry in those cases in which one is unmarried. And in this, we have the general sense, but there are always specific scenarios that we can consider that really don't fit into any of these neat little packages. And that's what we're going to talk some about next week. You know, one of the things that I think we need to be, that we really need to focus on is that if you have someone that realizes what they did was wrong and they ask God for, for forgiveness, they can't be reconciled. They can remarry at that point. They have not sinned. The apostle Paul says, if you marry, you have not sinned. But we want to turn around so often in our in our previous modes of context and in our previous methods of engagement with the Scripture. And we'll say, oh, no, 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 Paul, they have sinned, and here's why. And when we do that, we, we cause way more problems than what we solve. Because so often we want to put on our referee shirt. We want to get that whistle that we believe that God gave us to judge our brethren. And we want to judge other people's situations. And we want to you know, try to basically just try to simplify those situations to make it fit into our preconceptions and tell them why they're wrong or tell them why they're sinning, forbid others to marry or whatever else. You know, maybe we believe someone didn't try hard enough to reconcile. Well, they just didn't try or they just get, didn't give it enough time. But like you said, that's not our call to make, man. That's not well, our decision to judge. No. And in most cases, and in the cases that I have personally seen people uh, in it's when someone has, cause actually I, I, I spoke to a guy and he, this has been pulled probably a year ago now, close to a year ago. And he and his wife, both Christians. And he admitted he had not been, he had not been there. He had not been there as a husband. He was a, what we would probably call a workaholic. He was a very busy man. He wasn't out cheating. He, he wasn't abusing her or anything like that. And even she would admit that he was just a very busy man. And from that perspective, um, she said, hey, look, he's neglecting me. And by the time this all got brought out, they went to counseling and I talked to him specifically. He admitted he had been a workaholic. He had not been there the way he needed to be there for her. And he was sorry and he realized he had sinned. He was wrong. Well, she ended up wanting to divorce him. And he said, look, he said, I, I don't want this divorce. I want to be with you. This is this is not what I believe God wants. We're both Christians. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to change. And uh, he had put some things in place where to prove to her he really did want to change. And she said, you know, I'm done. So she ended up divorcing him. Uh, he remained unmarried for a while. And he was trying to reconcile that marriage. He loved her. They had kids. And she ended up getting with another man and, and uh She's, she's remarried now. So, you know, it's one of those things where in, in that situation, he sinned. I, I believe that in neglecting her, he did not do what he was supposed to do, but he did not want the divorce and he wanted to, to stay with her. And uh, what, what does a man like that do? If we just quote 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11 and say, well, you know, sorry, you know, you can't reconcile anymore. You got to remain unmarried. No, that that's that's ridiculous. That's crazy. That that doesn't even make sense within First Corinthians chapter seven because at that point he would be he he would be unmarried. He he had, was unmarried when they divorced, by the way. But it's it's here is what I tell people all the time because everybody wants to talk about their specific situation. And so here's how I summarize it: If you're married, you don't have a right to divorce unless you have lawful reason. If you do, you're wrong. Okay. If you're the, if, 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 if you are, even if you don't remarry, you have sinned. Okay. What do you need to do then? You need to remain unmarried and try to reconcile. 
Well, what happens if that's not possible? Well, if you've done that and it's not possible, I'm not going to sit here and judge your situation and tell you what's what's attainable and what's not attainable, okay? But if you have decided and, the, and, and those Christians around you have decided that it's unattainable, you've tried it's unattainable for whatever reason, then at that point you need to acknowledge what you did was wrong. You should have never divorced unlawfully. That was a sin. That was adultery, committing adultery against your spouse in doing that. And because you remain unmarried, you tried to do what you, you know, you, you did what you tried to do uh, in saving that after realizing you should have never left to begin with. But at that point in time, you're, you're free. You can remarry, according to Paul. Okay. What happens, though, if you weren't that person? What happens if you were the person who did the unlawful divorce and you went ahead and remarried? You left your spouse, no moral grounds for somebody else. You committed adultery. You and the, the, you you sinned. Okay, that marriage, that new marriage, was conceived in adultery, and the person you married, they were a complicit party. They too were wrong in that. But you are not to divorce again, thinking that that's repentance. And we're going to get into, as I said before, great detail in that next week. I'm just trying to cover some of these situations. Well, what happens? Yeah. And this is what I tell people all the time. Okay, Paul never forbid anybody marriage. He didn't. He didn't. But when there is no longer a marriage available to you, you have the right to marry. And I want to say yeah. that again because I think that that that'll hopefully resonate with people. If there is a marriage available to you, you need to reconcile that marriage. That's why you need to remain unmarried. Go go and reconcile that. Okay. If you divorced unlawfully, and there is there is that availability of reconciliation, you need to reconcile. You need to do that at that point in time. I would say you don't have a right to another marriage, not because Paul is forbidding marriage, but because Paul is saying you need to go and reconcile this former marriage that you have. That's God's will. But if that is no longer the case, if that cannot happen, if that does not happen, if it's unattainable, then at that point, yes, you can remarry. No, you're not sinning in doing that. The only time you would be sinning in remarrying is if you are already married and you divorced in order to marry someone else. That's the only time. Paul's not saying if you're just randomly out there and you're a divorced person and for you know you, you just can't remarry. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about if there is an opportunity for reconciliation and you choose not to take it and you remarry, then you're doing the same thing Jesus condemned. But if you have tried and you've reconciled, and as Lee said, tried to reconcile and it didn't happen, I'm not going to sit here and judge the situation, but if you remarry, you have not sinned because that's different. So the only time someone would be restricted to marrying somebody else is if A, they are still married to somebody, or B, if they unlawfully divorced and they can still reconcile. That would be the only time. But if you're already divorced and there's no reconciliation, realize you may have done a lot of sin. You may have been the, the problem, You may, but you can repent. You can ask God to forgive you and you can remarry at that point because there's nothing to reconcile anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really good summary of the application, the specific application here. And like you said, we're going to get into a whole lot more of that next week. Brother, we've done it. We have gone through marriage, divorce, and remarriage contextually in the Old Testament. We've looked at it through the lens of Jesus. We've looked at it through the lens of Paul. We have covered this in many, many different parts. We spent hours upon hours discussing it and we're finished. We've discussed all of it, but we still have a little more to go. We still have a little more to discuss in next week's episode. What we're going to do next week 
is we're going to put this together and we're going to answer your questions that you have sent us. We've received some really good questions. We please ask, please send more questions, whatever questions you can think of on this subject that either haven't been answered or any questions that still nag at the back of your mind. Send them to us because we'll, we want to drill those down. We want to answer them. We are also going to discuss modern application of all this, putting this all together. What does this look like? What does repentance look like? Because God allows repentance. God provides forgiveness. God grants us redemption, even in spite of our errors, even in spite of our shortcomings. What is that, if, if not grace, that unmerited favor that God gives to those of us that love him, that he loves he does all of it. He does that for us. And we're going to talk about what repentance looks like. We're going to talk about some more of these hypotheticals. We're going to answer your questions next week. And that will bring our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage to a close. And we'll be getting into some new territory at that point. In any case, we thank you all for listening. We appreciate and love you all so much. We love the feedback that we're getting about the podcast. We're receiving word from people all over the place. Kevin's received word from people in the mainline Brotherhood Churches of Christ or mainstream Brotherhood. I've received some good feedback from our brethren in the One Cup Churches. Brother, what we're doing is a good thing, and they appreciate you. I appreciate you. And folks, we appreciate you for listening. There's so much appreciation. All this appreciation, appreciation to go around everywhere. Man, I appreciate you. Oh, appreciation for you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Yes, I feel so appreciated. But guys, thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Facebook. Join our Facebook group. Share our Facebook page with your friends. Tag and your friends in these posts if you think they'd be interested. Leave us five star reviews on iTunes, on Google, on Stitcher, on Podbean, on on Spotify. On any platform you're using, leave us those those reviews. Those help us gain visibility and it helps us grow our audience. Well, and if somebody has a question, as Lee pointed out, I mean, not not just now, but if you're listening to this five years from now, I would hope you would try to reach out to us to try and get better clarity if there's something you're not sure about. If something just really seems off, if something we said we said just really seems to contradict itself, let us know because First of all, you may have misunderstood us. Um, this is something that, you know, we've spent years looking at. And if there just seems something, if there's something that just doesn't sound right, we, we want to hear. We want to to know what, what you think doesn't sound right so we can parse that out and look at it a little bit further. But for furthermore, I know when I started writing on this, I was oftentimes misrepresented. And yeah. one of the things I was misrepresented as, as being as someone who said that you could just divorce for whatever reason, even though <laughs> I, you know, was as clear as I could, the sometimes it's easy to misrepresent an argument. And I always jokingly say the best way to refute an argument is to misrepresent it. And so if anybody ever can come out of what we're saying, hear what we're saying, come out with saying you, you just can divorce for any reason, or if you want to remarry, just divorce and ask God to forgive you. No, that's the opposite of what we're saying. We're saying that if you do divorce unlawfully, you need to remain unmarried so you can be reconciled. But if that's not the case, then you can remarry. And we're saying that if you're in an abusive marriage or if for whatever reason you're being sinned against and, and there is no change there, those are the situations that we believe are okay to to leave, to divorce and get remarried, not just for whatever reason willy-nilly. And so I just want to be careful yeah. to make that clear to people because I don't like being misrepresented. I don't. And I, I mean, Lee and I spend hours trying to clarify ourselves. You know, Paul spent, what, 
39 verses, 40 <laughs> verses on this stuff. You know, if you read it, it yeah. takes you about five minutes to read through it. We've, we're spending hours and even then people can misrepresent. And so we're just saying, if there's something you have a question about, come to us first. And if I see somebody out there saying, oh, Kevin thinks you can just marry for any reason, that's just dishonest. I'm just going to go ahead and call that out. That's dishonest. If you listen to this and you believe that, that's you're being very dishonest. And uh, and and it's it saddens me because that's where people get misconstrued. Because instead of listening to what we have to say, oh, I just heard that, you know, they just don't care about God or they don't care about the Bible or, or whatever. Clearly, yeah. we're spending enough time in the context to show we do care. So that's just my little soapbox there that if, if people are listening to that and... Uh, they're going to misrepresent what we say. That's very dishonest and uh, they need to really examine themselves. Well, and absolutely. And on a little related note there, if you believe that this is false doctrine, reach out to us in that aspect as well. Holler at us and, and share that with us because, Hey, maybe we missed something because one of the things that I have learned is that I am fallible. I reserve the right to be wrong because I've been wrong before. It's never easy to admit you're wrong the first time, but it gets easier the more you realize just how little you really know in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I'm wrong all and, the time. You don't have to misrepresent me. I'm wrong just, <laughs> just you know, all the time anyway. So, but I, but I will say this: if if you do hold to that belief that this is false doctrine reach out to us and let us know why, because you can't just say, oh, well, they're preaching false doctrine. That's a big charge and a big charge requires big evidence. So if this is false, if this is false doctrine, my request would be, okay, reach out to us and tell us why prove it. Because I've looked at this in a variety of different ways because ultimately my desire and Kevin's desire is to express our fidelity to God. And we both recognize that our fidelity to God is not predicated upon how much knowledge we have. It's expressed through the transformation of our hearts and our demonstration of our love for God. But even so, we still desire to understand God's word to the very best of our abilities. And that means parsing out the context. It means looking at the history. It means looking at the literary context and all of those things that we've done in this, in this endeavor to study marriage, divorce, and remarriage and what God revealed in the long ago to those inspired men. So to that end, that's what we have elected to do. That's what we have tried to accomplish. We thank all of you for your patience and bearing with us as we go through this because Kevin and I are both verbose. We both possess the gift of gab and we really enjoy talking as you've probably figured out. So thank you all again for listening <laughs> and we bid you Godspeed and a good night.